Take your Bible, if you will, go again to the book of Job, find chapter number 2. When you get there, stand with me, and we're going to read uh, two verses tonight, and then I'll pray and let you be seated. Job chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse number 9, and we'll conclude in verse number 10. If you are in love with your Bible, say amen. Two verses, verse 9, verse 10. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. But he said unto her, Thou speakest as one of the foolish women speaketh. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this did not Job sin with his lips. Now, I appreciate the Lord giving a little room for Job to have faltered in his heart. Somebody say amen. But with his lips he honored the Lord. I want to read verse 9 again. Then said his wife unto him, Dost thou still retain thine integrity? Curse God and die. Father, take the word tonight. Make it bigger than life. May your word come off the page and enter into our heart. Lord, empty me of me. I know that I have nothing to contribute to this message tonight. So, Lord, I pray that in every way possible, you would remove me from the equation. Fill me with your spirit. Give me an unction from on high. Let the Word of God be preached with clarity and with boldness. And I'll praise you for that. And I'll give you glory for that. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen. You can be seated. Two simple verses that I would dare say are somewhat familiar to many of us tonight. And I want to take my focus in verse number 9, and I want to talk to you about three misconceptions in verse 9. Probably one of the most well-known verses in the book of Job. Probably one of the most familiar passages in all of Job's story is when his wife meets him in the ash pile, And she says, Job, do you still retain your integrity? Then she says, transitioning from a question to a statement, curse God and die. I believe although this text is very familiar to many, I want you to allow me this evening through the help of the Holy Ghost, I want to show you what I believe are three Major misconceptions in verse number 9. I believe that there are three that are equally misjudged in this text. There are three who have been given a bad rap and an undue reputation. First of all, I believe that Job's wife has been misjudged. I believe that there is much mistake concerning the 
entirety of her character as reflected in verse 9. Here she says, Job, do you still retain your integrity? Just curse God and die. But I want to say to you tonight that the statement that has been made by her gives us the impression that there is a great deal of turmoil transpiring in the heart of Mrs. Job. I would like to say to you, for clarity's sake, that Job was not the only one that lost ten children. Oh, I need some help right there. It was not Job alone that buried ten babies, but rather every child that Job lost, she lost as well. I do not seek to downplay the suffering of Job, but in this one case in particular, it may be that this one touched her a little bit more than it touched Job. Now, it's not a competition, but it wasn't Job that carried those ten children for nine months in his womb. It was his wife that bore them and bare them and delivered them. And I'd like all the ladies to holler amen. This was before the epidural was an option. Can I get a witness right there? And uh, she had great investment in the lives of these babies. She had sat up at night and cradled their fevered body. She had wiped their brow when the sweat a fever enveloped it. She had taught them to walk. She had nursed them. She had cared for them all of their life. No doubt Job was a good father. He was a perfect and an upright man. And you can't be a perfect and an upright man without being a good father. Somebody help me right there. But there is an investment that a lady makes into the lives of her children that a husband will never fully understand. And so when we see that Job has lost ten children, it is to be noted that she too has lost ten children. Job has lost all that he had financially. He has lost all of his flocks and his herds and his camels and his donkeys and all of his great wealth. And I say to you tonight that no doubt Job was blessed by God, but Job must have had a keen business instinct that carried him to that place of great wealth. And Job, is, if his health recovers here, why, the same mind that allowed him to acquire these things previously, it is possible that Job could recoup these losses. But now Job sits dying and sick. Why? In those early days of history, we clearly understand that Mrs. Job had no way of regaining the wealth that they once knew on her own. And she couldn't just go out and get a job. She couldn't just go into the camel, sheep, donkey, cow business. I mean, she was really at his mercy. And so there is an aspect to this that Job has not only lost it all, but Brother Toby, in a greater way, she has lost it all. She can't go out and rebuild the farm. 
She's trusting in God's favor on her husband. And she too is weeping over ten graves where the grass has not yet regrown. And for all that Job has lost, she has lost his will. So she makes a statement in her loss, in her anger, in her bitterness, in her sadness, in her depression, in her heartache. She makes one statement. And there has been a judgment written about her life that is carried down through the centuries. Augustine, that early church writer, said this, She was no more than the devil's accomplice. That's pretty rough, ain't it? It was Calvin that said, She is greatly defined as a diabolical fury. Pretty rough. Most commentaries will list her alongside of the likes of Jezebel and Delilah. And she is marked as one of the wicked women of the Scripture. But I want to say something tonight, and I want you to hear me and hear me well. I do not believe that it is fair nor proper to judge this woman based off of one statement that she made at the lowest point in her life. I need more than three amens right there. I don't believe it's fair to write her life story around one statement that was made with ten fresh graves, newfound bankruptcy, and a dying husband. I don't believe that it tells the totality of who she truly was. Well, Job didn't even believe that this was her true character. Job says in verse number 10, I like this, I love this King James Bible. She, Job says, Thou speakest, now these are two words that change everything, as one of the foolish women speaking. He didn't say, you are a foolish woman. Why, even in his suffering condition, he knew better than to say that. I'd encourage some of you married couples, get some King James in your disputes and in your arguments. And say, honey, I'm not telling you that you are dumb. I'm just saying you're acting dumb right now. Okay? (laughs) As one. That changes things. That means you're not one, but you sure are acting like one. Now, that's funny to a degree, but it's true. Job said, what are you talking about? That's not like you. This doesn't seem like something you would say. You're speaking as one of the foolish women. Job is indicating to us that this is out of character for her. That this is not her typical demeanor. I'm going to need somebody to help me right here. I'm afraid that we've all had moments in life when we spoke as one of the foolish people. When we have said things out of character and we have said things out of frustration And we have said things out of weakness that do not reflect the totality of our life, but they are a glimpse into the weakness that we experience. Well, some of y'all, I done bragged on you in the opening part. You done done feel like you did your job and now you've checked out on me. I'll just say it to you like this and see if I can't get an amen. How many of you are thankful that what you said in your lowest moment 
was not recorded for the whole world to have access to. And have your name out beside it. Well, that brings it into context, doesn't it? This is what she said in her lowest moment. When she was absolutely faced with the greatest suffering that any one family may have ever known in all of history. And this is, by the way, the only thing we know about her. She's not referenced again in Scripture anywhere. Job mentions his wife twice, but it is purely in poetical form. It is not in a direct reference to her as a real person. The only thing we know about her is one thing that she said when she was on the very bottom. I think that if we were honest, and if we'd give her a little bit of grace, we'd have to testify that we've all said things out of emotion, pain, and frustration that we wish we could take back that don't really represent what we believe or how we feel. The psalmist confessed that. He said in Psalm 116, I was greatly afflicted and I said in my haste. Anybody ever spoken in haste tonight? (laughs) I, I, I talk for a living. I do this every night. Trust me, I've said some pretty stupid things before. Psalm 31 verse 22. For I said in my haste. You see, it is very possible to say things in our haste that do not reflect who we truly are. I say tonight that Job's wife has been misjudged. And I think if there's anything to learn from that, is we ought to give a little bit of grace to people who are speaking out of their sorrow and people who are speaking out of their frustration and people who are speaking out of their hurt because when it comes down to it, we need people to give us some grace for what we have said in our lowest moments. I believe that Job's wife has been misjudged. Secondly, I was nice to her, but now I'm fixing to set the record straight. I do believe that she was misjudged, but I also believe that she misjudged Job. Just as wrong as we have been about her, I believe that she was just as wrong about Job. Because this is what she says. Dost thou still, this is important, retain thine integrity? Curse God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I want to say something to you. This statement could have been one of frustration, could have been one of anger. And to be honest with you, it sounds like she's a little more out with God than she is with Job. Sounds like she's a little bit more uh, bent out of shape toward heaven than she is who is in her home. But nonetheless, whether she means this out of anger, some have said that this was a plea for mercy. Where she says, uh, uh, Job, if you'll just do this, it'll be over and you won't have to hurt anymore. Now, I cannot pretend to know the motives of her heart. She may have just meant it out of anger. Or she may have meant it out of mercy. Job, if you'll do this and God kills you, it'll all be over. But no matter what her intentions were, she was wrong about Job because she thought Job had cursing in him. 
So no matter what her ultimate motive was, she was wrong about Job when she thought that Job still had a curse in him. I want to say to you tonight, thank God for folks like Job who have been through the ringer of life. They've been down in the deepest valley. They've been through great trials, but there's still no cursing in them. Can I just tell you the truth? I believe if Job really had cursing in him, we would have found it in chapter 1, verse 20. When all of his children were dead and all of his wealth was gone, I believe if Job was going to let one slip, it would have been right then. If Job was going to mumble it under his breath, I believe it would have been right then. But you know what Job did in chapter 1, verse 20? Thank God he fell down upon the ground and worshipped. This isn't a man that has cursing in him. This is a man, hallelujah, that is blessing God instead of cursing God. Now, she has revealed this before she accuses him. She said, do you still retain your integrity? Now that word retain here is a very specific word. As a matter of fact, it is the same word. Its definition is the same as to cleave. To cleave. That's a good Bible word, ain't it? We find that in Genesis. When God is giving His instruction to Adam and Eve, and He said that a man is to what? Cleave unto his wife. What does that mean? To cleave it means to become one. To become one flesh. In the Bible, when something is clave unto, you can't tell where one ends and the other begins. Was it Samson that clave a jawbone of a donkey and as he began to stack up the bodies of the enemy, his hand clave unto it? That means that he couldn't let go of it if he wanted to. His hand had become cramped around it. His tendons had locked. His muscles had set in place. You couldn't tell where, where he was and where it started. And so she says to Brother Job, Do you still cleave to your integrity? You know what that means? Hallelujah. I'm having a good time tonight. It means that integrity was not something that Job did. Integrity was something that Job was. You couldn't tell where Job ended and his integrity began. And I'm afraid there's a whole heap of folk in the house of God tonight that our great downfall is Christianity is not something that we have become. It is something that we do. Therefore, it can be separated. You can remove our walk with God from our life because it has not become part of us. It is an activity. It is not an attribute of us. It has not become our character. Job had so much integrity that you couldn't tell where Job ended and it began because it was one and the same. Job, do you still retain your integrity? Curse God! I'm going to need some help right here. If anybody had an excuse to curse God, it was Job. The Bible tells us that Job was a perfect and an upright man. Uh, he had done nothing to bring on these hardships. 
I'll just be honest with you tonight. If these sorts of troubles showed up at my house, I'd have a long list to go through of why I felt like I deserved what God had sent my way. But Job had no flaws. He had no faults. There were no character issues. There was no sin unrepentant between him and God. Job is a man that walked with God. Job is a man that lived for God. And now seemingly undeservingly and unjustifiably, the greatest of horrors has come to his house. If anybody had a right to be mad and curse God, it would have been Job. Job comes to his breaking point. And when Job gets to his breaking, his breaking point, thank God he refuses to break. Thank God for people who won't quit when the going gets rough. It was David that often wrote of his despair. But it was David who greater still wrote of his deliverer in spite of his despair. It was Daniel in the lion's den that cried out to the king and said, My God hath sent his angel. With Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who said that our God is able to deliver us. But I like what they said. But if not, we will still not bow to your false God. They had come to their breaking point, but they refused to break. They came to a place where cursing was an option, but they refused to curse Him. Thank God for those who go to that point, but instead of breaking and instead of cursing, they bow and they worship before God. Elijah was ready to quit. He felt alone and abandoned. And the Lord said, Elijah, I've got 7,000 other men who have come to their breaking point too but they have refused to break. Oh, when the world sees us, may they look upon our plight and say, surely this is enough to break them. But may they see in us what they saw in Job, a child of God who comes to the breaking point, but refuses to break. Job's wife thought he would curse. Even the devil thought he would curse. And all stood by, holding their breath, waiting for it to escape his mouth. But Job at the breaking point said, What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God and not receive evil also? (laughs) Job didn't curse because cursing wasn't in him. Several years ago, I received a call late on a Friday night. Actually, would have been classified as early on a Saturday morning, about two or three in the morning on a Saturday morning. A young man that was a member of my church A fine young man, didn't drink, didn't party, didn't run with a wild crowd. Eighteen years old, had just graduated that previous school year in May, and this was in August. I got a phone call that he had been in an accident. He was at a wedding rehearsal dinner. He was to be in the wedding the next day, and he and two other young men left that rehearsal about midnight. They were going back to the house to go to sleep. 
There was no drinking involved, no drugs involved. The young man driving that little Toyota extended cab pickup was going way too fast. And when he went to get off the exit, his right side tires came off the pavement and into the dirt and immediately flipped that truck end over end. This young man that was a member of my church, it launched him out of that little tiny window in the back and put him into the top of a Georgia pine tree. The call that came to my phone was his mother frantically saying, Preacher, we need you to come to the medical center. Colby's been in a terrible accident. I got up and I went to the medical center. I walked into the ICU waiting room, me and Miss Amy. And when I came in, his grandpa and his grandma were there, members of my church. Grandfather, one of the greatest men I've ever known. His mother, a member of our church, his uncles and aunts and cousins, all a part of greater life. I walked into that waiting room and have you ever stepped into a room and you could tell that it wasn't good before anybody said a word? The heaviness that hung in that room, silence and what nobody was saying was saying more than what they could have said. I stepped into that room, I hugged his, I hugged his grandpa, Brother Frank, I hugged his grandmother, Miss Sue, and in a few minutes, uh, nobody's really saying anything, and his mother comes out of the hallway from his room. And she's got a big old smile on her face, and she's got tears in her eyes, but she said this, she said, Preacher, she said, he's going to be all right. He's going to be okay. She said, I know God's going to take care of my baby. And I could tell by the sound of her voice and the response of those around her. That was not the medical diagnosis. That was only the optimistic heart of a loving mother. He's going to be all right. God's going to take care of him. Walked back into that ICU room, that curtain drawn around his bed. There lay this skinny little 18-year-old boy, his head already swollen, almost the size of half of this top of this pulpit. I mean, unbelievable. You would not have been able to recognize him. His body changing colors. They worked frantically on his health to save him. We prayed and we prayed and went back out to the waiting room and prayed. And just as I was about to leave to go home, the doctors came out and said to his mother and his father, said, we need you to come back. Said, we need to see you. They asked me to go. We went back to that room. That curtain pulled back. And they're working frantically on this boy's body. The doctor looks at them and says, uh, Ma'am, sir, we've done all that we can do. Colby is unresponsive. He said, I'm asking permission that we can stop resuscitation. She said, You can't let my baby die. Don't quit. Don't you give up on him. They're pressing his chest. They're pumping the oxygen in him. And they're working frantically. And he says again, ma'am, we've done all that we can do. And I'm asking permission to stop resuscitation. She says again, you can't do that. He's going to make it. He's going to be okay. And finally, I looked at Angie and I said, Angie, I said, what he's trying to tell you is Colby's already gone. The doctor shook his head. She said, preacher, what do we do? I said, Angie, he's told you they've done everything they can. I said, we need to let him go on to heaven. He's already there. She said, I suppose that that's all we can do. 
They laid down the equipment. They stepped away from the bed and that precious little mother just collapsed in my arms on this side weeping. This boy's daddy is on this side, a great big hardened fella, spent years in the penitentiary for distribution of meth and other drugs. He's not saved. He's literally using God's name in vain. I'm holding him up on this side and it's GD and it's cursing and it's blasphemy against the very name of God right here and his, this boy's mama is just weeping on the side. I held her as she laid across the bed. I hugged him and tried to comfort him. I brought the grandparents back and literally held Brother Frank as he lay across the body of his deceased 18-year-old grandson. One of the hardest moments, one of the hardest days I've ever seen in ministry in my life. We finally got everybody calmed down and got everything under control and they came and they took the body and it was late Saturday evening by that time. The next Sunday morning, which was the following day, God in His divine intervention, in His in His supernatural foreknowledge, had already had Brother Ricky Atkinson lined up to come sing at our little church. I don't know if you know Brother Ricky. He's wrote many, many wonderful songs. One of the songs that Ricky has written is a song about the life of Job. And it says, when troubles come suddenly, blessed be the name of the Lord. Ricky was already scheduled to be with us. That Sunday morning there was a handful of folk there in the nine o'clock service. And Ricky's up and he's beginning to sing. And as he began to sing, the double back doors opened and here come Miss Angie. And here come that whole family, grandma, grandpa, lost daddy, everybody. The whole family came in, sat on the front two or three rows. I thought, boy, I don't know that I could have gone to church the day after my 18-year-old was taken. They sat down on those two or three rows and Ricky began to sing, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, after he sang that song several times, just weeping uncontrollably, that little mother raised her hand. And when I tell you all this girl's country, I'm talking about country as a turnip green. You understand me? I'm talking about the country. One of them folks owns five trucks and still has to hitch a ride to town. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Got a dog tied to every tree in the yard. Do y'all understand? Country. She raised her little hand. She said, Preacher, I want to say something. I said, Miss Angie, you go ahead. She stepped out in front of that church. And she said, Preacher, I ain't mad at God. (laughs) She said, He knows what He's doing. And He does all things well. And she said, I don't understand it. She said, but I trust Him. He knows what He's doing. And oh, to think about the heart of a Job. It comes to a breaking point where cursing is a natural reaction. But instead of cursing, here comes blessing. (laughs) Instead of anger, here comes love. Here comes praise. Here comes joy. Job's wife said, curse him! Job said, I can't. It's just not in there. (laughs) 
And oh, that I knew would have a heart like Job. When the whole world says, you curse him and you'd be right in doing so. But may there be something in us that when we come to our breaking point, we just don't break. <laughs> I'm glad we didn't end the revival last night. She was wrong about Job. She said cursing. But Job just didn't have cursing in him. And I want to tell you tonight, child of God, we'll all come to places in this life where that's an option. But I pray to God that it's just not in us. But that blessing might be found where cursing could be. Hallelujah. Job's wife has been misjudged. Job has been misjudged. There's a third in this text that I believe has been mischaracterized and misjudged. (laughs) Hallelujah. I believe God has been misjudged in chapter 2, verse 9. She said, Job, just curse God! And if you'll curse God, He'll kill you. (laughs) But I want to stand tonight and say, I'm just not sure that's the case. I'm just not convinced that's true. I'm just not sure that if Job with ten fresh graves in the distance, with absolute bankruptcy and poverty having arrived freshly upon his door, with a body that is covered in boils and it is as close to death as it can be without actually crossing the threshold, I'm just not sure that if Job would have cursed God, that God would have snuffed him out and killed him. I'm just not sure of that. Some of y'all look like you are. Maybe I got you thinking. But I just don't believe that if Job would have went on a cussing, cursing fit, I, I just, I'm just not convinced that the Lord would have smote him and killed him in those ashes. You say, preacher, why why do you say that? Well, because the Bible tells us that the Lord has not dealt with us in His anger. Woo! Hallelujah! Because the Bible says the mercy of the Lord endureth forever. Because Psalm 103 verse 14 said, He knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. <laughs> I just don't believe that if Job would have cursed, necessarily that God would have automatically killed him. You know, Mrs. Job, she made it sound like God was on the edge of his seat with a lightning bolt. And the devil's down there saying, curse him. Come on, Job, cuss him. Come on, Job, you know you can do it, cuss him. And Job's wife is saying, honey, just curse him and get it over with. And God's sitting up there with that lightning bolt boy. You, I mean, if I even see it forming on your lips, wow. That's kind of the picture, ain't it? But, see, my problem with that is, is my heavenly father knows the pain of losing a son. <laughs> 
Woo! My heavenly Father, my Savior, my Savior knows the pain of losing it all and going from the wealthiest there is to the poorest that there could be. And I just don't believe that God was on the edge of his seat waiting to zap Job if he was to curse. And I'm glad he didn't. I'm glad Job didn't curse. But if he would have, you just cannot convince me that the Lord would have killed him. And I can tell some of y'all still ain't convinced. You you over there with the devil. Yeah, get him, Jesus. Huh? Yes, Lord. <laughs> well, can I just prove my point tonight? I've got more Bible to prove that the Lord wouldn't kill him than you do that the Lord would kill him. Because in Mark chapter 14, there was an old boy that was not perfect and upright. <laughs> he was prone to wonder and prone to backslide. And in Mark chapter 14, Simon Peter himself, under the pressure of temptation and under the scrutinizing eye of the world, the Bible says in Mark 14, 71, but he, Simon, began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not this man of whom you speak. Simon Peter cursed. That's the same word, cursed, swore, and denied Jesus. Luke tells us that he was within eyeshot of the cross when he did it. The Lord turned and looked on him. But he didn't send a bolt of lightning from heaven to kill him. But he met him on the seashore some days later and said, Simon, do you love me? <laughs> Simon, do you love me? Simon, do you love me? And Simon hung his old head in shame and said, Yea, Lord, thou knowest. <laughs> And God didn't kill Simon when he cursed. And, and he's no respect for persons. What he'll do for one, he'll do for another. And I'm just not convinced that if Job sitting in a pile of ashes covered in balls with ten dead children would have cursed him. I'm just not convinced that God would have killed him. <laughs> but rather, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, it was Simon Peter was endued with power from on high and stood and preached under Holy Ghost unction and thousands got gloriously born again. <laughs> so I believe we've been wrong about Job's wife. I believe she was a godly woman in a low place. And we only have one peek into her character and it was at her moment of greatest compliment. I believe that Job's wife was wrong about Job. There was no cursing to be found in him. And then I believe that she was wrong about God. He's not quick to judge, but he's long-suffering and merciful. And he remembers that we are just dust. I'll tell one little story, and then I'm done. 
as a teenager, the church that I grew up in, there was a little block wall outside the front door of the sanctuary. This ran kind of parallel to the church. And all of us teenagers would sit out there on that wall, you know, before church. And uh, when it was church time, we'd come in, but we'd sit on that wall. And I remember one Wednesday night sitting on that wall with my friends and a fella pulled in, parked his car, got out, and for some reason, I'll never forget this, he had on a pair of flip-flops, and maybe that's why I remember it, because nobody wore flip-flops to our church. But he had on a pair of flip-flops and a pair of blue jeans and a polo shirt untucked. Brother Toby, I remember that he was crying when he came in. Walked right past that wall, walked into the church, sat down by himself in his, I'd say at that time, his mid-30s, maybe, maybe toward the latter part of his 30s, but I'd say mid-30s. He sat in that service, and we had a wonderful little church. My daddy that many of y'all have met was a pastor there. And it was just a run-of-the-mill Wednesday night prayer meeting. But that fellow sat back there and wept almost uncontrollably the whole night. He came back again and again and again, and then ultimately got right with God, got restored, got on fire for God. He gave his testimony some time later. He was saved as a young man. Went off to Bible college where he rose in the ranks. He was recognized for his Bible knowledge and his oratory abilities. And he was really, just to put it in common vernacular, he was the golden boy. He was going to do something great for God. He married in his youth, his wife, and he had problems. And that marriage ended in divorce and ended with him out of the ministry and in an effort to redeemed some portion of his life. He had joined the United States Army and become a ranger in the 3rd Battalion, but he was far from God. This is what he told. He said, one night, he said, I was so angry at God for all that I had endured and all of my wasted years and all of my broken dreams and so angry at her for causing this and so angry at God for allowing this. And he said... I was trying to pray and I couldn't pray. And he said, I grabbed my Bible and he said, I threw my Bible across the room as hard as I could and it hit the wall and just pages went everywhere. And he said, God, if this is how you are, I'd just soon you leave me alone. Boy, it's dangerous, ain't it? I mean, that makes me nervous to even think about it. But that's where he was. But he came in that little country church on a Wednesday night and he found out what I've been trying to tell you all that the Lord knoweth our frame and he remembers that we're just us and if we confess our sin he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us that young man had a family and in that family with his new wife he had a little boy that was 10 years old that little 10-year-old boy got saved and got on fire for God. They had show and tell at his public schools, military school out on the base. That 10-year-old boy, and they had show and tell. He said, Daddy, I want to take my Bible. And he took his Bible. And he got up and show and tell, 10 years old, and said, this is my Bible. And he said, this tells me about the Lord Jesus, and it tells me that I can be saved, and it tells me that you can be saved. 
And those kids in his class laughed at him and made fun of him and mocked him to the point of tears and he sat down. A couple of weeks went by and they had show and tell again. That 10 year old boy said, Daddy, you think preacher let me borrow a songbook from the church? He said, I'm sure he would. What you want it for? He said, we got show and tell. He said, I got something I want to do. He went back to show and tell where they laughed at him for bringing his Bible. And he said, I'm going to sing from page number 120, O Victory in Jesus. <laughs> and they laughed at him again, but he didn't care. And that little boy grew up, big God called preacher. He's pastoring the church tonight there in California and God's using him. But it came from a daddy so angry and so bitter that he's willing to curse God. But he found out that when we're done with God, doesn't necessarily mean he's done with us. <laughs> and when we think we're through with him, doesn't mean that he's through with us. Anybody thankful for the mercy of the Lord tonight? Father, I want to thank you for the Word of God. I want to thank you, Lord, for the Scripture that we can examine thoroughly. And in it, we can see the character of Christ. We can see the attributes of our Heavenly Father. We can learn from those who've gone on before us like Job and his wife. Lord, I pray tonight that you take these truths and seal them in our heart. Give us grace for those that are hurting Give us tenacity to bless when we're tempted to curse. And give us a thankful spirit that you do not deal with us according to our sin, but you deal with us according to your mercy. Do this tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Stand all over the building, heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Our sister's playing right now. As she's playing, how many would come? Say, Lord, give me grace for those that speak out of their hurt. Lord, forgive me for the things I've said when I was down. Dear Lord, give me the strength that when I come to my breaking point, like Job, that I just wouldn't break. There ain't a one of us in here tonight that don't owe Him a thanks for His mercy, for His graciousness, and His kindness toward us. Many have come. Would you come?